0: in chapter 5 still it's all about choices first God brings us to a place that we can choose to become his child that we can choose to be born again then we're often quite gradually brought to the place in our lives where we recognize we must also choose to make Jesus the Lord of our lives as well as our Savior And I think most often this surrender to the Lordship of Jesus includes a point in time where we purposefully choose. Just to review a little bit, um, we're going to start with verse 1 in a minute, but I, I just see our next slide is one of the things I want you to be thinking about. We have to choose. Either I'm a new covenant person who walks by faith, Or I'm wedded to the law, and I depend on me. We all need to shift gears from the law, from human achievement. We need to shift those gears to grace, to salvation and victory at Christ's expense alone. So shift gears, Paul says, and stand fast. And this is his thought as we begin our review of chapter 5, In verse 1, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Don't waver, he says. Don't move, not even for a moment. Don't be moved by the temptation to think that you're strong enough or astute enough to please God with your own puny efforts. What Paul has been talking about in Galatians is belief and faith. But it's, for many people, misdirected faith. Faith or belief that their works can save them. Or that faith that their works can earn God's blessings. Paul says, no. Don't fall from grace into that trap. It takes away your liberty and it binds you to a chain gang A chain gang of struggle and endless toil. Sandy Adams says this, Legalism is the mentality that it's up to me to either obtain or maintain a right standing with God. I try to prove that I'm deserving of God's blessing and favor by what I do. The gospel of grace teaches just the opposite. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. Our own most obedient people among us are unworthy, but God extends grace. Sometimes the storm blows and I get bullied by legalism. A friend or a preacher or even my own conscience tells me I should be doing this or doing that. I begin to doubt. This is my second point. I begin to doubt the sufficiency of Christ. Then I add a few good works just to be on the safe side. But trying to be on the safe side can easily put us on the wrong side. When we lean toward legalism and we diminish the cross of Christ and we drift away from God's grace. Now, we're caught up and we need to uh, pick up where we left off last week. With verse 7, Paul says, You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Well, one of the legalists must have sold them a toxic potion of faith mixed with works. He says in verse 8, This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. Paul assures them that these legalistic ideas are not from the Lord. The Lord who called them from their old lives to redemption and liberty, he warns them to totally reject these men and their false teaching, because he says in verse nine, if we can get the slides to verse nine, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This kind of teaching can spread quickly it's contagious, it can destroy a whole church a whole church it take it sounds like Even Paul's faith is stretched to the limit as he must continue to stay separated from these people. He has to leave them completely in the hands, the protective hands of God. Verse 10, the first part. He says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. Paul is forced to put these false teachers, whoever they are, In the Lord's capable hands. He says this in the last part of verse 10. He says, But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. I think verses 7-10 through indicate that there was some specific individual or small group of people that were troubling the faith of these people, attempting to lead them astray. They were lying to them as Judaizers. Verse 11, Paul says, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. Well, these Judaizers, perhaps they're saying that Paul also teaches the need for circumcision. Perhaps after Paul left Galatia, these false teachers were using the circumcision of of Timothy in Acts chapter 16 to bolster their claim to the absolute necessity of circumcision for salvation. Um, These are the men in Acts chapter 15 verse 1 who came from Judea and taught the brethren that unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Well, let me take a few minutes to review the historical setting of this verse the record tells us that paul did have timothy circumcised but then he refused to have uh, titus circumcised and this became a major controversy in the early church we find timothy's record in acts chapter 16 starting with verse 1 a certain disciple was there named timothy the son of a certain jewish woman who believed But his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Timothy was a young man. It says that he was of Greek lineage through his mother, but his father was Greek. He was of Jewish lineage, I'm sorry, through his mother, but his father was Greek. In order not to be a stumbling block, they preached as they preached to the unsaved Jews on their missionary journeys, Paul took Timothy and physically had him circumcised this way timothy could not be discredited by unsaved jews who would otherwise refuse even to listen to this unfaithful jewish witness of the of the gospel titus though being fully a full-blooded greek did not need to be physically circumcised in fact it would have bolstered the false belief about circumcision that was falsely reported in Acts fifteen, one, where we just read that unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Paul tells us about Titus here in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 3. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. As we read in the Corinthian letters, Paul preached that there are areas in which Christians can exercise their liberty. But the Judaizing party sprang up and threatened to destroy the infant Christian church by seeking to impose absolute law of circumcision on every convert to Christianity. Those who wanted to cling to some of the now antiquated uh, practices like circumcision and um, refusing to eat meat offered to idols. They were considered by Paul to be weaker brothers. And Paul always said that we should be sensitive to the weaker brother and not do anything to cause the weaker brother to stumble. But suddenly, the weaker brothers became so strong that they wanted to tyrannize the church and make their preferences the absolute law of God destroying the essence of the gospel of grace. So here we are now in the book of Galatians. This group of Judaizers were such a threat to the truth of the gospel of grace that Paul steadfastly refused under any circumstances to engage in circumcision as a religious act. Verse 12 is an example of the disdain and the scorn that Paul felt toward these legalistic Judaizers. He says in verse 12, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. He wants the knife to slip. He wants infection to set in. Paul wants their physical act of circumcision to demonstrate the true spiritual devastation that their contemptible theology is having on these dear spiritual children of his. Verse 13. For you, brethren, you have been called to liberty. Only don't use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Paul also wants to be careful here to prevent a misunderstanding. Just because we're free from living under the law doesn't mean we have liberty to sin. Rules no longer govern our behavior, but that doesn't mean that our behavior doesn't matter. Law is out, but love is in. We've swapped rules for relationship. McGee tells us there are three methods of trying to live the Christian life. Two of them will not work, he says. One is a life of legalism, and Paul has been discussing this. The other, McGee says, is the life of license, which Paul discussed in Romans 6. Paul asked after, he said, after we are saved by grace, can we live in sin? And Paul's answer is, God forbid. You can't live in sin and be a Christian. McGee says, Now, you may fall into sin, but you will get out of it. The prodigal son can get into the pig pen, but he won't settle down. The pig pen won't become his forwarding address. He'll leave it. The Christian life is neither the life of legalism nor the life of license. McGee says the third method of living the Christian life is the life of liberty. And in the remainder of this chapter, McGee says, Paul will give us the modus operandi, the M.O. for living by the liberty God's Spirit provides. Paul says, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Here's my third point. It is grace, not law, that frees us from doing wrong and allows us to do right. Grace does not set us free to sin, but it sets us free from sin. The love of Christ produces gratitude in our hearts. Every believer should desire to please God, not because he must please him like a slave, but because he is a son and he wills, he desires to please his father. Each of us is like the Old Testament slave that was set free. We are set free from sin. This slave was set free, but then he asked to remain with his master because of his love and his gratitude. He became a bond slave, bound only by the love relationship between the master and slave. We find this story in Deuteronomy chapter 15. I'll start with verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. Skipping down to verse 16. And if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you, because he loves you in your house, since he prospers with you, then you shall take an awl and thrust it through his ear to the door and he shall be your servant forever. Well, this is our kind of liberty in Christ. I am set free from the grip of sin, the grip that my old self has on me, free to choose to love the Lord, free to have a love relationship with Jesus, my Savior. My fourth point, we do what God wants Not because we fear to do otherwise like an enemy, but because we want to do it. For Jesus is my dearest friend. God is the one who loves me. I serve him not because of pressure from without, such as the law, but because of a great principle of gratitude within. We serve God because we love him. The Lord Jesus said that to his disciples. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. The whole basis of obedience is a love relationship to Jesus. The law can't produce this kind of of um, love or goodness. The law produces a negative goodness. I don't do this or I don't do that. All legal systems produce only negative goodness. They never rise to the sphere of positive goodness where one does things to please God for the very love of pleasing God. The Lord wants us to serve Him with that kind of basis. In verse 13, Paul continues to remind us that the Spirit's liberty motivates us and enables us to live out the true mark of every believer The love for one another. Verse 13 ends with, But through love serve one another. Jesus said it in John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's interesting, both in John 13 and here in Galatians 5, the Greek word for love that's used is the Greek word agape, the highest form of love. Agape is far beyond, far greater, far purer, the highest form of love than phileo. You see, phileo, that's the greatest form of friendship. Agape love is God's love, an unmerited, unselfish love of mercy and grace toward others. This is why Paul is led by the Spirit to say in verse 14, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Agape love fulfills the law because it always seeks God's best for everyone in every situation. Verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. Well, in verse 15, Paul is simply describing two or more people who are at that moment walking in the flesh snipping at each other with gossip and taking a bite out of someone's reputation. Agape love requires the work of God's Spirit because only the Spirit can produce God's kind of love in our lives. So Paul can say in verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And how do you overcome a lifestyle of selfish gratification? Some say the answer is willpower, or power of positive thinking, or self-discipline. But the answer is much simpler. Paul tells us to walk in the Spirit. My fifth thing I want you to focus on, it is the indwelling Spirit of God that empowers and sets in motion a life of godliness in each of us. Paul pinpoints two approaches to life. Either you see yourself in Christ or apart from Christ. Either your world revolves around Jesus or it revolves around yourself. Either you're relishing the grace of God or you're relying on your own grit. Get caught up in Jesus. Walk in the influence of the Holy Spirit and you will lose interest in fleshly desires. It's interesting that Paul doesn't say to live in the Spirit, but to walk in the Spirit. When we're born again, we're made spiritually alive. But we all, like newborn babes, must still learn how to walk. My sixth point I want us to focus on. Walking in the Spirit symbolizes a step-by-step progression. I call it a journey, and a journey where I haven't arrived yet. It asks the question, am I following Jesus today? It's a journey, one step at a time. Each step requires balance. Am I leaning on Jesus? Go to that next slide. Each step requires deliberation. Am I choosing the Spirit's direction and strength? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways or on all your walk, (laughs) acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Each step moves me forward or backward. Many times it's two steps forward and one step back. Verse 17. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. The Berean study Bible puts it this way. For the flesh craves what is contrary to the Spirit. The contemporary English Bible says, the Spirit and your desires are enemies of each other. We all have two natures, the old and the new. That's what Paul was describing in Romans chapter 7. He himself experienced the turmoil of two natures. Perhaps the most explicit description of these two natures is that the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit wars against the flesh. Therefore, we cannot do the things that we would like to do. When the flesh is in control, the spirit does not have the the, the right to do those things in our lives. They are contrary. They are at war with each other. The Spirit can stop my old desire from surging to the surface and causing me trouble. But my flesh can also block the love and gratitude my new nature wants to express. Have you experienced this in your life? I certainly have. There's a song that we sing entitled, Come Thou Fount by uh, Robert Robinson. It goes like this, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. It's a wonderful hymn. It's one of my earliest favorites. And in the last stanza are these words. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Well, after this song was written, someone looked at it and said, Well, that's not what I'm experiencing right now. I think I'll change it. So in some hymnals, you might find these words. Prone to worship, Lord, I feel it. Prone to love the God I serve. I certainly like that second stanza better, don't you? But which is true? Well, both are true. I have a nature that is prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. My human nature is the nature of fallen man and therefore has been corrupted by Satan and this world system. Well, I also have a new nature in Christ that is prone to worship the Lord. There are times when I'm riding along in my car and uh, alone, I say, and I just cry out loud, Oh Lord, how wonderful you are. I love you and I worship you. That's the expression of my new nature. My old nature never gets around to praising God or loving him. Every believer has an old and a new nature. These two approaches to life produce predictable paths. Paul will list the works of the flesh and then he'll list the fruit of the spirit. The flesh, which is me apart from Christ, works. It's all up to me. But the Spirit inside me does His work, and the result is fruit. Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Being under the law, the law always interacts with us when we're choosing to act contrary to the law. I used to tell some of the students that I was working with, I know exactly how you can stop your parents from ever making you clean your room again. Just keep it clean on your own. Let God's Spirit lead you. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. In verses 19 through 21, Paul makes clear what the works of the flesh are. He gives us a list of our natural, normal, human inclinations. I'm going to read this list from the Living Bible. Verse 19. But when you follow your own wrong inclinations, your lives will produce these evil results, impure thoughts eagerness for lustful pleasure, idolatry, spiritism, that is, encouraging the activity of demons, hatred and fighting, jealousy and anger, constant effort to get the best for yourself, complaints and criticisms, the feeling that everyone else is wrong except those in your own little group, and there will be wrong doctrine, envy, murder, drunkenness, wild parties, and all that sort of thing. Well, who of us hasn't had some of these bolded words described that describe us at times? I'm going to read those words, and I want you to realize that it's going to touch close to home. Impure thoughts, hatred, fighting, jealousy, anger, wanting to get the best for yourself, Just as a sidelight, my mom knew how to fix that. If one of us cut the piece of cake, the other one got to choose. (laughs) The next thing here is that, that you have complaints and criticisms. The feeling that everyone else is wrong. And last, envy. Well, our flesh doesn't have a very impressive resume, does it? Paul is reminding us of who we are and what we are if we're left to ourselves. That was God's purpose in the law. It was a safeguard, like a playpen to keep us from wandering into trouble. But without the law on our own, that list is exactly where we would end up. And obviously the works of the flesh can never work your way to God. Paul says as he finishes verse 21, Let me tell you again, As I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. The idea that this verse isn't, the idea in this verse isn't that a single act of envy or hatred or sexual sin will send a person to hell. Paul is saying that a man who walks in the flesh and doesn't have a relationship with Jesus is headed to hell, and he's easy to spot because he's practicing a constant pattern of evil habits. In these next two verses, Paul holds out the boundless flavors of God's agape love that will spill to running over as we walk in the spirit. Verse 22, "But the fruit of the spirit is love, and joy. Peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Nine fruit of righteousness, nine qualities or attitudes or traits produced in our lives by the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's why Paul tells the Ephesian church in chapter 5, Verse 18 of Ephesians, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Dissipation, the opposite of that is uprightness or decency or honor. Qualities, those qualities found in the nine fruit of the Spirit. Paul is reminding them of the benefits of being under the influence of God's Holy Spirit. My seventh thought. Some Bible scholars teach. That these are all nine flavors of love. Agape love. That the Spirit fashions and forms in our hearts. When he's given free reign in us. Did you notice that free reign might be freedom to reign. As opposed to giving the Spirit free rein as you would a horse. This is when we're choosing to be a bondservant, a bondslave of Jesus. Sandy Adams gives us some insight into these nine fruit of the Spirit. He says, Notice these nine fruits are in three clusters of three. Cluster one flows from our relationship with God, love, joy, peace. Cluster two affects our relationship with one another, long-suffering, kindness, goodness and cluster three involves our relationship with ourselves faithfulness gentleness self-control none of these attributes are man-made they're the spirit's work when you try to conjure up your own joy or be kind because you know you ought to be or force yourself to love a guy acting unlovable we call that fake fruit (laughs) But if you trust the Holy Spirit to produce what you lack, he'll manufacture true, genuine, juicy fruit. Point number eight. The Spirit yields through us unenforced love, spontaneous joy, peace in the midst of fear, enduring patience, genuine kindness, Decision-altering, self-control. It's beautiful. Paul finishes this list to explain why he stated back in verse 18, if you're led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. Why you aren't under the law when these nine traits of righteousness are fully functioning in your life? Because, as Paul states at the end of verse 23, Against such there is no law. Paul goes on in verse 24 and 25 to explain how walking in the Spirit can become a life of living in the Spirit. Let's look carefully at these two verses. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in in the spirit verse 24 says and those who are Christ's first I must truly belong to Jesus he must be my Savior and my Lord and then those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires can you see this is speaking in the past tense We who belong to Christ have already been crucified, said Paul. Not should be, not better be, but have crucified. The work is done. Since I belong to Christ, my sin nature already died on the cross with Jesus. Therefore the passions and desires, the anger, gossip, and temptations... Those that used to dominate me no longer have control over me if I simply acknowledge that I've already been crucified with Christ. It's an act of faith on my part. It's a conscious choice that I make by faith to reckon or acknowledge or consider myself crucified, dead to sin each day, each moment saying by faith lord today right now i live this moment for you too many believers are christians but they live as though they're not they trust only in their own strength this is why paul tells us in verse 25 if we live in the spirit if we live In the Spirit. Let us also walk in the Spirit. John Corson puts it this way Walking in the Spirit simply means doing what the Lord tells you to do moment by moment. Whether it's making a phone call to someone in need of encouragement, getting away for five minutes to pray, or chopping wood for someone in need, it's also the most impacting, exciting, unpredictable life there is it becomes my lifestyle my way of life i belong to jesus i choose to be his bond servant and i think humility must be at the core because paul ends the chapter on this note verse 26 let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And here's my last point to focus on. Most often, it is a form of conceit or pride that stands in the way of God's Spirit. McGee talks about our pride, that the cross makes many demands on our pride, and many. Different ways. Here's what he says. Actually, the cross of Christ is an offense to all that man prides himself in. It is an offense to his morality because it tells him his work cannot justify him. It is an offense to his philosophy because its appeal is to faith and not to reason. It is an offense to his will because it calls for an unconditional surrender. And it is an offense to his pride, because it shows the exceeding sinfulness of the human heart. The cross is an offense to human pride. If we choose to surrender to the lordship of Jesus, our old nature, our flesh, takes offense in all the ways That Dr. McGee has pointed out. But. To walk in the spirit. Is nothing less than that. Each step under the influence of the spirit. Is a step. Away from self. Away from our pride. Each time. I nourish the inner spirit. I am starving. My inner flesh. Myself. This is our continual and constant choice we make at each step as we choose to walk in the Spirit, as we choose to walk in fellowship with our Lord. God bless you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Spirit, the Helper. Thank You, Lord Jesus, that He indwells each of us, that You, by Your Spirit, the Holy Spirit, indwell our hearts, indwell our minds and our bodies. Lord, thank You. Thank You for the power, the dunamis of the Spirit of God to live for You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. It's good being with you tonight.